Since time immemorial, indigenous people have lived, traveled, and traded in the Puget Sound region. The Donation Land Act of 1850 to encourage westward expansion allowed American settlers to claim these traditional native lands. The explosion of immigration into the region that followed forced the U.S. government into a fraught treaty-making process with local tribes. The original terms of the Medicine Creek Treaty were inadequate and ultimately unaccepted by tribal leaders resulting in war. The Indigenous Voices podcast is an extension of the award-winning Puget Sound Treaty War Panel series and Fort Nisqually Living History Museum. The podcast advances tribal voices in the telling of Puget Sound history and shares tribal knowledge and expertise with wider audiences. In this episode, we wanted to learn more about cultural distinctions among Coast Salish tribes and intertribal relationships pre-treaty era. We also discuss how these relationships were impacted when non-native communities first arrived in the Puget Sound. Hello, my name is Warren King George. I'm an enrolled member of the Muckleshoot Indian tribe on my father's side. And on my mother's side, I descend from the Upper Skagit tribe. I'm Brandon Rainon. I'm the Tribal Historic Preservation Officer and Acting Director for the Historic Preservation Department for the Puyallup Tribe. I'm also a Puyallup Tribal member. Nancy Bullchild, Nisqually Indian Tribe Director of Archives and Tribal Historic Preservation Office, Tribal Member and a Tribal Elder. To all you good people, it's good to be here. My Indian name is Mist on the Water. I am from the Squaxin Island, Sa'ilwamish, Tupixin people of the Salish Seas. My name is Charlene Christ. I believe the Southern portion of our, our Lushitsit speakers, they not only spoke our language, but they also had to learn several other languages because of being in a kind of a central marine zone where people came to trade. There was a lot of intertribal trading. And with that came intertribal marriages that uh, helped kind of uh, make it not so different from the North and the South, but there definitely is a difference. There also is a different knowledge when it comes to the marine tides and how they flow. We have inland waters that um, swirl around uh, points of lands here. And when you're up in the Straits, they have total different velocity when it comes with the different winds and the tidal changes. And so a complete different canoe society. And although we had our marine water canoes down here that had to withstand some heavy duty um, weather changes. Um, up north though, they, they had, had to do some uh, ocean type changes. So their uh, canoes were very large. They had some goods up north that we didn't have. And we had goods down here, like our Olympia oysters that we traded and bartered for. In our archeological site here at um, Mud Bay, we found dentilium and 
the uh, archaeological site was about 500 years old, so the trade-in was a very important part of our, our culture. There's a difference in the art, and you can distinguish it from, you know, the Haida South Sound tribes. You know, we didn't go towards the totem poles. The Canadian tribes, they had a different hierarchy. They had the clans, so it was the totem poles were identifying their clan and the canoes, you know, if you look at the canoes, they were larger because they were seagoing. And so, you know, in order to, for trading, you can see, as you look at older pictures, you know, they loaded these big old canoes up. They had large families in them. So some of those were different compared to Nisqually who would have just, you know, mostly had the river canoes, different fishing gears, because like, you know, the Macaw tribe, they do the whaling, we don't. You're gonna have these artifacts that are gonna differ from that different region. So there's a lot of differences that I think happen, but you do have that similarity in because they're all considered Coast Salish as opposed to the Plains tribes, you know, all the Eastern tribes who do have different traditions, different regalia. As, as an archeologist in this area, you know, a lot of the biggest differences I see is the, the armory um, that the Northern tribes had, uh, especially as you get, get up more into the Alaskan tribes, they have some really ornate armory. And the late Judy right down here always taught me that we were a peaceful tribe. We were peaceful people down here. Yes, we would defend ourselves if needed, but we would often find ourselves more negotiating like, well, what do you want? You know, what here, what, 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 what can we give you? What are you lacking? You know, so we were more of a welcoming, peaceful tribe. But again, we did have the, we did defend ourselves when needed from the attacking tribes from up north. Um, but we just lacked in the, in the archaeological record any type of weaponry outside of what would be considered, you know, just hunting material too. So, uh, whereas when you look at those northern tribes, they have specific artifacts that are related to uh, war. Uh, one thing that Judy also taught us, we had so much in abundance, I can't think of any battles. Uh, involving Puyallup, Nisqually, Squaxin in, in our archaeological record. All the ones that we have recorded in oral history are in defense um, from being attacked from uh, tribes from the east and tribes from the north. From that, I would say that we were pretty much a peaceful uh, group living, uh, co-mingling on the waterways, using the resources um, with one another and exchanging and trading uh, generally peacefully. In our treaty of 1854, the Medicine Creek Treaty, they put in there that we could no longer uh, have intertribal trading with the tribes up north. That was part of who we were as far as southern uh, tribes. We, we did a lot of commerce. We did a lot of uh, trading with one another, and that was part of our life. Uh, our people have stories of uh, being able to jump in a canoe and and Elde Inlet and be able to ride the, the strong tide and be up in Fraser River. And even the water helped us to be closer connected. That line that separates Canada and the US, that never was there before. And to us, the Northern people, they are still part of us. We have so many stories as Southern nations of that connection to the Northern tribes. Yeah, I think uh, Charlene hit it right on the head. I mean, you, the uh, the connection is between the the north south, but even our our nations down here, 
you know, we were all considered, we consider all each other as one and we were involved with one another, just as we are today. Like even though I'm Puyallup, I still, I still have relatives at, at Nisqually, at Muggleshoot, um, down at Squawkson Island and, and tribes up north at like Tulalip. We I still identify as being Puyallup. We still are our own Puyallup community, but we know that we have strong family relationships in all, in all the different tribes around the Puget Sound. And you can always go to your families in, in these different tribes and feel welcome. Um, that's, that's something that the Medicine Creek Treaty tried to end. And it, the goal was to make sure that we couldn't have those interactions because I think they realized at that time that our, a lot of our strength as a community came from the fact that we had a vast range of community. It wasn't just, I wasn't just Puyallup. I wasn't, you know, and they weren't just Nisqually. Um, but putting us on these little reservations, they were trying to limit our access to our to our resources. Well, what made us so strong was our ability to interact with the northern tribes and the tribes north interact with the southern tribes and have our family units come together. And we see that with treaty wars. The wars were fought by warriors who were all interrelated. That, that uh, kinship uh, became the power that we drew upon to, to uh, defeat the the militia and the U.S. Army in the treaty wars. And so the goal of the, the treaty was again to, to make sure that, that we, they had to do whatever they could to break up uh, this great bond that the, the, the different neighboring tribes had with one another. With the marriages comes the ceremonies, which is the potlatch, which brings all kinds of tribal people together because you're bringing all of your family, extended family, and it's back and forth, you know, the potlatches because it's so that brings a lot of that connection. And also back in the day, the males of the tribes had more than one wife. So you get that other connection. It was common for a male in the tribe to, as I said before, if he was married, his wife's sister was widowed, they would marry that wife also so that she would be provided for. So with that, you get all of these, like I said, extended family, because now the sisters, kids become a part of that family. So there's always this interrelationship that's going on with these tribes and different tribal people. I feel also that when the explorers came, you know, they did take a lot of tribal people as um, guides. And so with that, you got the family. So sometimes these families were brought over the mountains, you know, all, all into a different tribe. So there was always this going on with tribes that I think that's why, you, in my opinion, you get a lot of this family connection one way or the other. Because I think in the treaty, I believe it's in the treaty that you couldn't, you couldn't have more than one wife, you know. So they did away with that, but that was how it always was. So for my family, because they're intermarried into, like I said, the Hudson Bay, you get that Hawaiian connection because the Hawaiians that came over in Hudson Bay. So now it's extended clear over to the islands. Establishing a, um, a family network uh, is key to access to those natural resources, to those uh, traditional foods that um, we either don't have a lot of or are very hard to get a, to get a hold of. And even though you know, we live on these post-treaty, post-contact villages now, or reservations, as you call them, most people call them. Um, we still have those those uh, contacts. We can still have access to halibut if we want it. We 
simply just make a phone call to one of our extended family members and, and work out a trade. Uh, if we, you know, if we wish for, for uh, a mule deer, uh, then we call our friends over in Yakima and ask for, ask if they're interested in making a trade. You know, we've got uh, some sockeye that we're willing to trade for some mule deer, backstrap. Um, you know, it's, and it's, it's, it's that been that way for a very long time. So you, you can see what, there are many benefits to having, uh, identifying first cousins, second cousins, third cousins, fourth cousins, and up to fifth cousins. That's our, that's our traditional way. That's our cultural way is to, you know, we claim that as family, fifth cousins. And that's a, it's a ways out there, right? Um, but it, it, that's the that was a, a value that was a, a traditional value that's a teaching from our old from our old ones and it also uh, exemplifies the importance of family and not just because we want to want to have something unique to eat once in a while but also for safety reasons and safety in numbers and it also prevents uh, intertribal warfare a relation if you have a blood relative that's a third or fourth cousin, and you know there's a there's a quarrel. Um, you know it it can be easily diffused by simply reminding them that they're family. And so you can see that the, the clearly see the benefits on on many levels, and 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 we haven't even talked about the spiritual spirituality. You know that's a you know we've you know that's something that we all have in common, especially the old way, the old traditional. Uh, um, spirituality uh, trail you know it's still alive yet but it's not as common and it's not as uh, it's not as uh, mainstream but it's there I mean it exists even you know, even though there's a border there you you've mentioned the Canadian border that doesn't prevent our 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 ancestors and our relatives from exercising that uh, that need to practice spirituality uh, it doesn't prevent the canoe journey from from happening, and it doesn't prevent the food from coming across the border. The relationship we have with our food and and how we share it and and what we give you as a visitor uh, depends on what we think of you, really, and that kind of still kind of happens today. <laughs> you know, Peter Puget when he first came down in his journals, uh, he's coming around with and he's being amongst the Squabash people who. Uh, for your listeners, they eventually go and be are forced to live on the Puyallup and Nisqually Reservation. Um, but so he's they, he's interacting with them first off as as they enter the Southern Puget Sound, folks. And uh, the first meal he gets is deer, and I always found that was interesting. That seeing that in, in our protocols that we know in salmon, good clams, and um, all these extravagant meals that we prepare for people but here are these visitors and we're like here's some deer we're not really going to extend too much i don't know who the heck you are uh you look funny uh, we've never seen you before and we obviously know that uh a lot of death in preceding you coming here because of all the diseases that were coming and being rampant when they arrived that i guarantee you the meal if it were if peter puget was a known person to uh, the Squabosh people, he, he would not have been greeted with, with deer. Now, the deer may have been uh, symbolic, you know, for a reason that to the Squabosh I'm not aware of, but uh, it just seems that, you know, given the ornate, welcoming, 
uh, feast that we are just known to have um, and to have such a simple meal upon the first greeting. Um, and then you look at the, the interactions during that meeting where a line was drawn and no one crosses that line without have, without there being repercussions for crossing that line. So, I mean, there was, it wasn't a, a, a cordial meeting. It was just kind of figuring out who we are and who, who they are. When the first early pioneers and missionaries came into this area, we were very hospitable. When the Royal British Navy came through to the Elden that our people were noted to be very friendly and we shared with them our goods. And of course we accepted some of theirs. When the Oblates from Mary Immaculate came from, uh, there were missionaries in 1852, I believe it was, came to the Olympia area. We, we were curious about their religion. We tried to understand it. And there's a written history documentation of how the people were baptized in the open because they wanted to embrace this new religion, trying to understand it. But then that religion turned on them too. We also have stories here of our tribal women bringing children into this world from an early pioneer man who was very upstanding and his wife didn't know that he had another woman. There came a time when they were honoring uh, Michael Simmons, I believe it was, and the uh, descendants of Michael Simmons were invited. And so here they were, native and non-native, looking at each other from across the table because they came from this man, Michael Simmons. During the time of the war, in the diaries of the early pioneers, they wrote how that in the Shelton uh, Mason County area, the tribal people would come to them, to their farms and say, hey, you need to get out of here. My people are so angry. I don't know what they will do to you. Get to Olympia, to the stock, stock house, I think it was, or the, the fort. And some of them, they weren't moving fast enough. So the tribal people put them in the canoes and, and paddled them all the way from Arcadia to Olympia. Uh, our people, we cared, we had the humanity, didn't matter what color of skin, but when it came time, when that time of war, yes, our people were very upset. Our people, we helped uh, when there was a railroad coming through, and you'll have to look this history up. They didn't have enough workers. There was not enough money to finish it. And we have a, a, a story, historical information of the tribal men getting together and helping to lay down that railroad tie without asking for any payment. We were their teachers. We were their doctors when they first came to this area. We helped bring in those babies. When they were sick, they reached out to our people for medicine. We brought them the medicine and we cared for our new people that came into this territory. But when it came time on that signing of the treaty, that trust that we had with them, we trusted their words, but so much of what was said at the 1854 Medicine Creek Treaty was forgotten. And, and yes, that war did happen. It really changed the everyday life of tribal people. Um, you know, because you find a lot of the Nisqualis in, in the stories, because like for the Fort Nisqually being right there, they were more involved now with the fort and with the people. And so it just, it changed the whole part of their everyday life. It also took away, you know, some of their traditional territories where they hunted, fished and all of that. So you find that 
they had to kind of deal with what was happening. Um, I feel whether they liked it or not. And um, the officials, it was more, you know, they just figured they were the law now. So, you know, like I said, the giving the land, you know, taking over the, the, the tribal land, what were you to do? You know, there once you're hunting, you're fishing, you're gathering spots. Um, the community, when the settlers came in, same thing, you know, put up farmland and took away the pastures for horses, you know, things like that. So, um, you know, at that time, before the treaty wars, you see a lot of that, that they were very friendly, you know, in giving and really helped them survive, you know, but it just changed because of the military, because of the treaty. All of a sudden, there was this whole change of your way of life because now you were considered hostile. It blows my mind because here you were just helping them the day before. Even one story where they were saying that, you know, they allowed a native a tribal person to work in the fort, but then at night he had to be locked up, you know, because he was tribal. My great great grandfather, John McLeod, was, you know, arrested just because, you know, he was married to a tribal woman, you know, had a wife. So you were guilty by association. During that tr treaty era, it just was very confusing, I think, to everybody. You heard rumors. They weren't true. And like I said, who's to define a hostile tribal person? Based on reading from research and listening to my father talk on his research, there were uh, the relationships between the Native and non-Native was, I guess a good way to put it was checkerboard. Uh, there was really no continuity. I mean, some some personalities were, you know, some folks had some personalities that were offsetting and some were willing to embrace or acknowledge that the native peoples have a right here and are belong here. You know, there were ones who refused to pick up a rifle and join the militia and fight the treaty war. They simply said, no, we won't do it. I think it was the Bush family who declined an invitation to, to join the, the Governor Stevens's militia to take up arms against the natives. But in but on the on the flip side, you know, Stevens didn't have any problem finding people who were willing to join the militia to or to to uh, try and uh, to try and uh, control the the native the natives uh, uprising. You know, I, I think just like today, I mean, in in modern times, you find that there are people who understand the grievances that natives have and have had over uh, generations now. Um, but they also understand that, you know, we really can't turn the clock back. Um, so I, I think it's best that we just talk about it and bring it out. And, and I think that's one way to kind of subdue some of those uh, feelings that have been shelved for several generations. And, and there are some people who get it. You know, I've got some non-Native friends. Uh, you know, we talked about this as children when we were in junior high and high school. And I jokingly told my Native buddies, I said, you know, we've been fighting this fight for, for years, for generations. It's, it's not over. It's still a fight. And I said, I'm not, I'm not I don't want to you know, blame anybody in particular, but it is the, the newcomers. It is the settlers who 
came in and uh, displaced our ancestors and they were upset about it. And, and all this land, it was over 2 million acres that was ceded over to the, to the settlers to do with what they will. And natives got a fraction of, of what they once had. And my non-native friend, he chuckled at me and he goes, well, well, I want to settle up with you right now, Warren. I don't want any hard feelings. What do I owe you? <laughs> I still remember that conversation to this day. I'm 57 and that took place when I was 13 years old, I think, or 14 years old. <laughs> His name is Scott and we're still good buddies to this day. We're still good friends. But I still remember that comment he made. Uh, he pulled out his wallet and he had you know, Velcro wallet. And he had a couple of dollars and he goes, what do I, what do I owe you? I don't want to owe you anything. I just want to be your friend. <laughs> but, and, and then on, on the flip side of that, or on the other end of that, uh, there's these skirmishes that have been documented uh, with White River in the city of Auburn and the cabins or the settlements that were quote, raided, unquote, and in, massacred uh, quotations that these incidences that occurred here in relationship to the treaty wars well you know those clearly were incidences that were you know there's a backstory there's probably a, a relationship there that we don't know that we're not privy to or has not been documented and are researched enough so you know i think uh, much like today there are mixed feelings and there are uh, some unmentionables that need to be mentioned and discussed openly and like what we're doing here. Thank you for listening. Be sure to join us monthly as we continue the conversation among diverse communities impacted by the treaty war and its aftermath. To learn more about the Puget Sound Treaty War, visit our tribal partner websites and fortnessqually.org, where you can watch our four-part panel series on the conflict. This podcast is generously supported by the Tacoma Historic Preservation Office and the Tacoma Arts Commission. Music by Vincent Johnson, Nooksack Lummy, and Nishani Johnson, Jamestown Sklalem Lummy.